For this last session, um, we've got plenty of time. I hope you've had questions brewing. Um, what I'm going to do first, I've asked our three respondents to just take uh, five minutes just to talk about what catechesis looks like in their parish and maybe one thing from, from the weekend that's uh, they'd like to apply or do something with or is helping the way they think. Um, so I'll ask uh, to start with that, and then after that we'll just do extended Q&A time. So we'll have at it. Thanks. Um, we, we're so grateful to have this conversation here, in part because it's been so formative to what we were trying to do as a church. That, I mean, we've been trying to engage it for a long time. It's nice to have the act, some actual professional people in the room who have researched this, and um, uh, particularly, Jerry, your, your work on the catechumenate was so formative to Elizabeth and I, I guess, about five years ago when we were, began dreaming um, of this church plant. And actually, the, the interesting part of our church story is that we began um, thinking about the church after we started thinking about the catechumenate. We were like, we want to plant a church, but we need to think, how, how do we establish a catechumenate first? And so we've always been in the business of kind of like figuring out catechetical experiments, so to speak. And um, Elizabeth can speak to this as well, too. But one of the things that maybe we've been trying to pioneer here, and it's funny to talk about it because we have our current cohort in the room right now, which is uh, great. Yeah, woohoo! All right. Um, We wanted to to establish a cohort model because there's such a sociological dimension or social dimension to formation that... We didn't want it just to be classes, um, and so we do classes. In fact, every Sunday morning, 50 weeks out of the year, there's only two weeks we take off, um, we have catechesis, and it's open to anybody in the church to come and experience that. Um, and we're, you know, we've, we've experimented with, with a couple tracks at, at, at the same time. Um, we have some vision for that as well. But the, the catechumenate formally is, I think, more where we we really dial in and say we want this to be like a primary formational tool for our, our, our community. Elizabeth, why don't you say a few few words about kind of how we think about that? That'd be helpful for your voice to be in the room. Oh, I think my voice is in the room plenty. I'm not too worried about it. So if you want to say more, but it's it was very interesting because when Alex said, hey, these are the two people I'm thinking about for the next IRCC, and, and we were like, oh. Yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we, love, we love those people because, as Ryan mentioned, Jerry Sitzer is so influential for the DNA of Eucharist Church and your research on the catechumenate, and I blame Greg Peters all the time for um, how, when I mentioned the Petri dish earlier of my schooling in therapy and in counseling psychology, and looking at it and saying, gosh, like there's a lot of stuff here in the culture that really isn't Christian in an early church cultural Christian sense, and how can we how can we be planting a church that is so seeped in the culture of Christianity in an early Christian sense, you know, versus kind of like a 20th century American sense, and um, and not sort of let it be commandeered by these other things in the culture, like a therapeutic model of church or an individualistic consumeristic model of church, you know, that are just so prevalent and really hard to get away from. And um, Greg Peters years ago was like, hey, Liz, you really need to start thinking outside the box, and you need to be okay to um, push the envelope. You need to be okay to think differently. And um, anyways, there, it was a much bigger conversation than I'm giving it. So anyways, but we, we credit these two a lot for what goes on at Eucharist, and um, whether or not they knew it. So, um, but with the catechumenate, we really saw it. Similar to what you were saying earlier about um, 
you need the community in order to have that single-minded devotion to Christ. And we see in San Francisco an endemic loneliness as well as an endemic individuality and like all these things that make it very, very, very hard to even begin to imagine, well, what would it look like to be in a community that has single-minded devotion? Like it just feels so far removed, the transients, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we really sought to, with this cohort model, to think about, yes, we have information in a catechetical session on Sunday morning, but how do we have a process where people can actually become a group and become a cohort, even if it's for a short time, and experience something different that you can only experience together? So, To give you a basic outline, because some couple of people asked me, like, what do we actually do? So the catechumenate for us is, a, is a, about a 12-week process, usually about a three-month um, experience. Uh, it includes, often includes a retreat element of some kind, and it includes a weekly rhythm of, of that group getting together. They, they do some reading um, on the side. There is also another layer of what we call triads or dyads, and basically spiritual friendship of some kind, where people are in an accountability, a con- confessional relationship with each other, and, um, and they, we encourage each of the cohorts that we do to learn how to do, take on the keystone practice of praying the daily office. And we, we encourage people to do morning, midday, and evening, or compline. So three times a day, they, for, we, we take this from the early church. They had this kind of three plus two structure, three times of structured prayer plus devotional time. That's usually more robust than most people do, but we try to encourage people to do that kind of three-part structure. And then um, we, they come to catechesis before ch- worship each Sunday. They participate in worship. They, we ask them to serve and to give in some way in the, in the community as well. And so what it is is it's kind of like taking church in its thickening up the experience of belonging. And we ask people to really to, to really lean into to being a fellowship together, to, to, lo- to know and, and love each other uh, and to express that. So the whole point of the catechumenate is after people have gone through that, they have a deepened sense of identity of what does it mean to be um, a devoted follower of Christ here in the context of Eucharist. And uh, so it's like building blocks for the larger church as well too. And we don't do the exact same content every time. So we rotate through a series of different themes and so people could do the cat in our theory, we haven't worked it all out yet, but theoretically people could do the catechumenate for like two years straight and still not exhaust all the material that we're trying to do because we're going through um, a, a lot of different types of uh, material. Like, for instance, we did a whole series on the seven deadly sins last year called Virtues and Vices and spent time thinking about the corresponding or the virtues and the vices. So catechesis was open to the whole church for that, but then the catechumenate dived into it on a much more personal, practical, confessional yeah. level. Yeah. And, and right now we're doing it on Benedictine spirituality, so we're going through Esther DeWall's Seeking God book, which is a great introduction to Benedictine spirituality. And then everybody in the catechumenate this uh, round is going to spend at least one night, uh, they have to spend one night at a monastery doing a silent retreat that will give them a kind of a guided silent retreat to do as a part of that. And this is considered part of the retreat as well, too, is this, this colloquium that they're at as well. Um, oh, I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, no. If you want to know more about it, whatever, you can feel free to ask. We also have stuff on our website, and um, the the video that kind of is behind a lot of this, I, it's, Jerry's credited in it because uh, we were working on it, got it really great. I showed it to Jerry, and I'm like, Jerry, this is, you know, have you have you seen this? And he's like, that sounds an awful lot like an article that I wrote. And we're like, actually, it's very much like the article you wrote. We're like, so we're like, we should probably credit you in there yeah. somewhere. So we actually, <laughs> so we came to an agreement that he was fine with us just crediting him in there, even though it's, you know, a lot That's of the language and metaphors are, are his. Yeah, so anyway. I remember what I was going to say. Um, I think also 
per again, Dr. Peters, what you were talking about in terms of having a community of people who really um, have a high commitment to the church and um, really view that as their home, you know, and, and there's this sense of single mind devotion within it. I know you got a tiny bit of pushback yesterday um, when you said that you put the church above your family, and maybe you want to clarify that a little bit. I don't think you meant you neglect your family at the expense of, you know, working on a sermon or not that. But I think part of what the catechumenate does is for 12 weeks it says, we're making our priority of the church. You know, like we're not going to fly to Malibu or we're not going to, you know, um, not show up to Sunday because it's, I'm tired, you know, we're saying, okay, for 12 weeks, like, you should show up to Sunday, show up to catechesis, show up to this weekly group, meet with your triad or dyad, you should be reading this book, you should be doing the daily office, you should be, you know, like, like, there's all these things, and, you know, maybe you can't commit to that for a year, we're not asking that, but for these 12 weeks, it's going to normalize this way of life for you. We hope it catches, and the people, like, then continue, as this is normal, because there's a lot of people doing that around, you know, because what's normal is what you see everyone else around you doing, Right. So we need a community to normalize this all-in, single-minded devotion, or else it just won't go very far. But, but what it does for the rest of the church is all of a sudden there's 14 more people in catechesis, and they're showing up every week, and they've been doing the reading for catechesis. And all of a sudden there's more people that are engaged and on time to church. You know, like, like it, 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 uh, it becomes like this spillover effect, right? And then when you've had enough cohorts go through the catechumenate, it starts to become normal at Eucharist, it's not like, oh, wow, you go to catechesis? Or, oh, wow, like you... You read the daily office, really? You know, it just becomes this DNA part of the church, which has been so beautiful. And that's why Brian and I say that we need it every year. You know, like, we we need to be like, yeah, I haven't really been doing midday prayer. You know, like, we, like we, we need to kind of, like, re-up our own commitment and have that become normal for us again. Okay. Um, I hear that and think if I only could do things over again in Waco, I would do something like what you're doing. Uh, so um, I was sort of building the ship as I was steering it. Uh, six years ago, I went I went to Waco from Stockton, California. Um, and what was going on was there was a group of 30 people or so who were administrators, staff members, faculty at Baylor University, and their families, and they were meeting once to twice a month, just kind of as a embryonic kind of parish church. And um, they'd never had a priest on the ground. They'd never had, like, any of that going on. Um, and so I volunteered to go there. And uh, from the early days, uh, because I had been on the com- on the Committee for Catechesis since 2009 and had been part of writing the catechism, uh, by God's providence, the catechism was released in draft form in that nice little leather-bound black edition and the people in the church said, well, then you have to teach it to us. And basically I just said, you really don't want me to do that. You're going to be so bored. And it's just not. So what I've really, and I, so I, I consented. I said, well, sure, okay, we'll do this. And, um, and we started meeting uh, two Sundays a month in somebody's living room. And there were 30 people, and then there were 40 people, and there were 50 people, and there were 60 people. And we like, were really tired of having to sit on the floor in this uh, couple's house and... Um, so we wound up renting space for that, and um, sometime later we were basically meeting in a school cafeteria and doing question and answer catechesis, and it was like this incredible thing because it was complete chaos. And uh, at a certain point, somebody was like, "You know, we've been having communion like twice a month, and then on the off Sundays we're doing catechesis, and if there's a fifth Sunday, then we're not doing anything. And wouldn't it be great if we like had the Eucharist after?" 
after catechesis. So we were doing basically an hour of catechesis followed by um, group discussion for half an hour, and then we would just break, and we would have communion without a sermon. Readings were like assigned by handing people Bibles, and uh, it was super raw. <laughs> but what we found was that it was just catching on like fire, and, and uh, basically we brought ourselves right up to a, what, we, what church planners consider a launch strength of about 110 people um, at that point. And uh, it was really amazing. And, and uh, what, what I found was that in our parish, 96, 97% are coming uh, from an evangelical background, um, Baptist, non-denominational, Pentecostal, whatever it might be. And uh, they're, they're really hungry for substantial teaching. Um, most of them are reading in the tradition. Most of them are reading, you know, they're, they're, they're very bright people. We, I think we have like at any given time, over 30 PhD students in the parish. It's crazy. Um, and it's super weird and super nerdy, and I get that. So, like, please hear me that I'm not telling anybody, like, oh, you should go do this, because it doesn't work anywhere else. Um, but we, uh, I'm just trying to tell the story, like, we launched Christ Church in 2015, and uh, a couple of years later, we were given the opportunity to buy the first Lutheran church in our area, <laughs> and uh, and we did, and we bought it, and we moved in two years ago, and um, it's just been an amazing ride, and so our really big emphasis is, and how it works is, um, we we take a bit of a, like, I would say a softer approach in that it's, it's very voluntary, and nobody's, like, signing on the bottom line, and no one's, like, signing up to make a commitment. It's just that commitment naturally develops over time, so I'm really relying much more on kind of patristic models of, like, you don't really sign up until you're signing up to be baptized um, or you're signing up to be confirmed. And then lots of stuff starts to happen. Um, so there's a kind of soft entry to it, which I think is really helpful. Um, I love the idea of having a 12-week catechumenate. But, but in our world, it's like, I'm not even sure like I like you people. <laughs> and so, but, but what happens is um, we start catechesis the Sunday after freshman move-in at Baylor. Um, lots of students come, lots of new faculty, lots of new people come. Uh, we kick off a, uh, a two-week Sunday evening course that's just a basic introduction to who we are as a parish, how we worship, and then uh, and all the while catechesis is going on on Sunday mornings. And uh, it's question and answer format. I ask the question, the people give the answer, reading out of the catechism. Uh, we usually sing a hymn beforehand. Um, it's really basic. Like I try really hard to keep it really basic. And um, we've had, through that process, you know, a former Baylor provost, uh, distinguished professors at Baylor, people who write for First Things, and then ranchers, right? So, like, <laughs> all these people have been through our, through our catechesis process, and that's been really gratifying. And um, we'll usually have something like, you know, anywhere from 16 to 25 confirmands in a year. One year we had 28 confirmands. It was pretty, pretty wild. And, and that's where, like, this time of year I'm asking people, like, consider whether or not you want to be confirmed. And then uh, last Sunday of Epiphany, we've signed people on the bottom line, and then they spend all of Lent preparing for baptism or confirmation, depending. So there's a, there's a kind of emphasis on initiation in that sense. Uh, even though confirmation, technically speaking, is not initiation, uh, we still basically form it as like um, being initiated into the life of our church through this year-long process, uh, so to speak. I will say, if I can jump in, I'm a parishioner at Christchurch, uh, you talk about it being voluntary, and it is voluntary, but you also 
have made it clear, and this just becomes part of the church culture, that the catechesis is the doorway into the church. Like, it's not just an optional thing you can do. You can come to this church. You can, you know, if you want to, in addition, you can do catechesis. Yeah. It's for any anyone that wants to be a member or whatever. You've, you've said this before. And, and to our surprise, like, this parish has grown from 30 people six years ago to, like, 400 members and attendance, you know, approaching 300. And, like, it's just crazy. And we're planting another church, and we've... We've planted another church in College Station since that time, and it's just, and it's all through this model of like build a catechesis group, right? You build this group of people doing catechesis, and then they start to form as a parish, and uh, that's been really gratifying to see that work. Um, man, and and the really cool thing about it too, I'll, I'll just say this as a as an addendum is we're really heavy on doctrinal teaching, so so like there have been people through the years who are like I just can't get on board with that. And they wind up going somewhere else. There are other people for whom all of this is rather new, but at the end they think, I'm not sure I understand it, but I'm in. I'm, it's either the community won me over or whatever it might be. Others are saying, I was really unsure in the start, but now I'm totally on board. And, and they are able to, um, I would say, sign on in a way that would not have been possible had we not done that instruction. So th- that's a really big plus in my book. Yeah. You're also going to say a brief word about the catechism. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> the catechism was just put out, like, last week by Crossway. Um, the new one. Yeah. So it's uh, you can get the PDF for free on the ACNA website, anglicanchurch.net. But if you want to buy it from Crossway, the best way is this. And this is not a secret. It's public, so I'm not giving you any kind of secret knowledge. Uh, I don't do that. Um, it's you get a church account on Crossway, and then the catechisms are 40% off, meaning they're $18 instead of $27. Um, and you can buy them a bunch of them, and you can and they'll get them out to you very quickly. And uh, you know it's free shipping, so it's an amazing thing. What we are going to do, and this is a this is kind of a plug for what Dr. Peters was talking about earlier. In the fall, when we start our new Christchurch 101, since we actually have now physical catechisms and physical prayer books, is everyone who goes through our Christchurch 101 event will get tied up with a nice little red bow, prayer book, and catechism, just stacked. And it's a free gift. It's just we're going to give it to you. If you think it's a value, then write a check. But it's it's just to say we want everybody to understand, like, this is our charter, this is our life, this is what we're about. Um, and it's not to say that catechism and prayer book are a replacement for the living God in Jesus Christ. It's just to say that that this is how our common life is chartered, this is in our culture, this is uh, convictionally where we are, and uh, and I think that's really powerful and important. So that's we've just said, hey, to spend like, you know, $35 to give people that stack of, um, of stuff so that they can start doing the doing the things we do is really wonderful. So, Excellent. Thanks. we got plenty of time for questions. Um, I've got the microphone, and I'll just pass it around. Who wants to kick us off? <laughs> um, so Elizabeth mentioned Greg talking about how he puts the church before his family yesterday. And <laughs> I, I wasn't offended by that at all. Um, I, I can get that. Um, but I was curious, like, practically, what does that look like? Um, like, how does that actually play out? Yeah, great question, because I think, you know, it's easy to misunderstand what I was saying. So, like, let's be, at its most superficial, 
when we launched Epiphany, it was, uh, you know, people are like, well, you planted a church. I'm like, well, no, actually, I inherited 65 people all living in the La Mirada area who wanted, who were already, some were practicing at an Episcopal church and some had been at that Episcopal church and then was driving all the way down to our now cathedral. And so, um, you know, so we kind of started with this group of people. And um, so, but but to find a space, because we just launched with too many people, there was no space in a house for what we, you know, for the number of people. So we immediately had to find a space. And so um, we reached an agreement with a church in our area called Redeemer Church, who happened to now own the former Episcopal Church building in La Mirada, who, like, they went out of business in the 80s. And so, um, anyway, so, but we had to take a 5 p.m., like, Sunday slot. So the first year we launched on Advent 1... Two months later, it dawns on my kids, Dad, what about the Super Bowl? What about the Super Bowl? Well, how are we going to watch the Super Bowl? Like, like we're going to not go to church, right? And I'm like, no, we're going to church. Like, yeah, of course we're going to church. You know, like, so superficially, it's that. It's just to say, like, to my kids, like, you know, no, we, we go to church. We'll record the Super Bowl. Um, come home and watch it. So literally at Epiphany now, having just exercised it, sorry, I know this might be too close to some of you um, if you're being here in San Francisco, but yeah, like, uh, oh, who lost? No, I don't know. But um, so in one sense, it's just that. But in another sense, it's saying to, you know, my kids, and my wife is a, her dad's now retired, but he was a fundamentalist Baptist minister. So in part, I married this wonderful woman because she basically thought like, well, yeah, the church comes first. Yes, I will date you, I will marry you, and this will be amazing. And so uh, so superficially, it's things like the Super Bowl, but more substantially, it's just saying to our kids, and now like I have an 18-year-old, so we've been trying to form them. Uh, when I was a senior in high school for Christmas, our parents gave us luggage. I mean, like, Thanks, Mom and Dad. That's not subtle at all. You know, like, uh, pack my stuff and go. Got it. So we we committed, you know, from the start, we're raising our kids to be independent. Um, and that's that's what we need to do for them. They need to be adults when that time comes. And now it's come. You know, before we knew it, it was here. So part of what we've been saying is we've tried to model for them that, like, look, when you're out on your own, it's no one to tell you that, you know, you should go to church. Forget Super Bowl Sunday. It's the other 51 Sundays out of the year. So we've just modeled, what I mean by putting the church first is like, we've just modeled the church comes before family commitments. And so, no, you you can't play that sport because it's on Sunday mornings. Um, No, you can't go stay at your friend's house if you can't, if they can't bring you back at this time to go to church. Um, And not, you know, so we've just done that for years. So, and the other thing too is I've been, you know, trying to be really clear with my kids that like, we have a vocation. I have a, I have a divine calling on my life. Your mother does too. And, and we have to honor that because it's divine. These are, this is God's vocation for us, not our own. So sometimes that's going to mean dad's going to be away. It's, it's mostly dad's going to be away. Um, and from the start, my kids have just learned that like, okay, I'm just not going to have my dad around as much. But let me quick, you know, to, to tell you that I think we did it successfully is this testament. So last last um, April, a former student of mine was being made a priest in our diocese, but in Phoenix. So the bishop 
he asked the bishop, Bishop Keith, if I could preach his ordination sermon. And Bishop Keith said, sure. So, uh, he, you know, Bishop Keith's understanding the connection we've had for a long time as my student at Biola and everything like that. So uh, Nathaniel, my younger son, who's now 14, was on spring break. So he said, can I go with you? I said, of course you can go with me. You know, we're, we have to drive out the day of the ordination, do the ordination, and then we have to get up. We'll have breakfast with Matt and Madeline. And we have to come home, though, because um, I have another commitment. Um, and so Nathaniel and I drove out. The ordination was great. Um, and then we stayed with some nice people from the parish and then met Matt. We couldn't meet Madeline and Genevieve, his son, daughter, because they were flying up to the north uh, of the U.S. to be with family. So Matt, the three of us, ended up going to breakfast. And so there we are sitting at breakfast, and, and, and Matt was just saying, like, you know, thank you for coming and thank you for preaching. And, of course, you and Christina and all have been so formative in my life and uh, really appreciate the, the, the challenging words that you preached yesterday. And he goes, I just want you to know, you know, like I know for a while that like Madeline and I have been like we would say things like, you know, the Lord can send us anywhere as long as it's Phoenix and, you know, like which is where they're from and things like that. He goes, but, you know, you and Christina have really just modeled for us this this example of being open to God. And then he said, and I know like Greg, it's, you know, I, I look at your life and I just think like, wow, that's just a guy who will, you know, he just says yes to God and then whatever it takes, you know, and. And, um, and, he, and he said something like, and probably at a great cost to your family, and there was Nathaniel, my, my barely 14-year-old at the time. And he said, you know, everyone says things like, wow, what's it like for your dad not to be home? And he goes, I don't know what they're talking about, because dad's always home and present to us. Except the reality is, is like, like, no, actually, Nathaniel, I was away like 100 days last year. You know what I mean? Like, um, like, you know, like, I mean, maybe not 100. But the point is we can count them. But, like, that was just him being spontaneous to say, like, no, my, my dad is home and present to us. So I took that as a win, that I'm somehow managing those vocations well in my life of honoring God's call on me to come to things like this and also to raise my children um, in a way that has demonstrated for them that the church comes first, you know, um, so that, that, that's, it starts at the mundane, like Super Bowl Sunday, but then it has to, you know, it's, it's just had to become the bigger things. And so I think that's what I mean by that, putting the church first. It's like, it means we're going to be in church on a Sunday because we're Christians and that, you know, and, and people say like, yeah, but I mean, you're paid to be there. I'm like, do you think I wouldn't be here if I wasn't paid? Of course I'm going to be here. Like Jesus is making himself available to me, you know, like, of course I'm going to be here for that, you know? Um, but I do think that, you know, the, the final thing I'll say, cause I've talked too long anyway, but like, I just remember once a pastor just before I was Anglican preaching and he said, you know, the first institution God created was the family. So family comes before all else. And I thought, well, he's never read Ephesians one, or if he's read Ephesians one, he's not remembering it before the foundations of the world, right? Basically God called people, the church, he established a church before he ever, you know, thought about the family. I don't know. I don't know the mind of God, but the point is, is like, you know, um, so I, I just thought to myself, like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to buy into that narrative, um, that my, that my family comes first. They don't. God comes first. And because God comes first, the church has to come first. But my relationship to my family, it, of course, is totally connected to the church. That's the point. It's not a segmented part of my life. Like, it's not like church or family. It's like, actually, church that is family that's what we do like dad's not going off to church it's like 
the family now goes and does the thing together that the family does. So, I, I, you know, that's, I will never write a book, you know, how to put the church first, because to be honest with you, I don't know, I think I do it, I think I'm committed, to, I know I'm committed to it, I think I do it, and there's a word from my kids that seem to suggest I've done it decently well, but I don't think I could articulate how to actually do that, uh, other than I think, you know, their mother and I have tried to model that this is just the way it has to be uh, in our life. Um, I think they get it. And now I have an 18-year-old who has to make his own decisions. He is making his own decisions because we raised him to be independent, and he's in church every Sunday. And I don't, that, that's him. That's not me. So, and my boys once said, like, do we have to be Anglicans forever? I said, no, you just have to be Christians, obviously, <laughs> first and foremost. But so far, so good. <laughs> Staying an Anglican. Other questions? This question is inspired by something that you said, Elizabeth, at our table. Um, but in thinking about how to apply things like the role of St. Benedict and monastic lifestyle to um, the lives of everyday people, um, it seems like there's kind of a translation that needs to happen in how do you take this um, this idea, this role that was written to a very specific group of people at a very specific time and place who were all committed to a very similar lifestyle together, um, and how do you transpose that onto your own lifestyle? And it seems to me like um, there's some ideas kind of on the high level of how to do that, but then every person needs to do that on their own individual level um, as, you know, a a parent or a single person or different industries of work um, and different time schedules and such. And so um, I'd love to get people's thoughts on, like, is there a place to make that less individual and more communal? And, um, yeah, I, I mean, if we're looking at the rule of life of, um, you know, this very specific group of people from long ago, is there a place for, like, a rule of life for... Um, a married family of two, uh, or, um, yeah, like a tech worker in the 21st century. Um, yeah. And, and, and I'm also thinking about, like, stuff that does happen in the church today, like, you know, they're like singles groups or, like, married people groups, young adults groups, and, like, thoughts on that kind of thing, too. I want to say just how wonderful that's, I mean, for me, that's where the daily office really comes in, is that, you know, in our parish, we have not just one daily office group, but several daily office groups and several families praying the offices. And so, like, some days I join the people who are saying it at the church, and some days I'm just saying, I'm home with my family, and this is what we're doing, and I'm trying to work into a rhythm of that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be home more. I mean, I'm trying to put my family at least, you know, I, I, I'm struggling with what you're saying because part of me is like, no, I really just need to be a dad, you know. And um, But I think there's something that really wonderful that happens when you start to break all of that out of the four walls of the church and you start to think about how these rules, these community ways of life can be, um, can happen anywhere, really. And... Um, and how they can be embodied by that church anywhere they happen to be. Um, one of the things we've really tried really hard to do is to draw a deep and lasting connection between 
the parish church and the home. Um, so Alex knows this. In, in Epiphany, we do Epiphany house blessings, and and they happen at just about every home in the parish, really, ideally. And on the first time you do this, you get a crucifix that um, is supposed to go near your front door, and it's the exact same one that's behind the pulpit. So it draws this literal connection between the two. And I think that's, I mean, a lot of what David Fagerberg has been talking about with, with just this, our imagination needs to not just, when we hear the word liturgy, think about what happens in pews or at an altar. We need to think about what happens in every part of life. And so, like for a tech worker, you could say, like, what would it look like if on your bus ride to Google, you know, you prayed the daily office before you started your email catch-up? You know, like that would be an amazing thing and nobody would care. Right. Um, what would it look like if um, if if for a professor you started your class with prayer and intercession? What would it look like if you as a professor said to your students every week, like who would like to be prayed for this today? You know, it's things like that where you can start to I mean, I think a rule of life is is in many ways something that you receive but it's also an imaginative exercise. Like, what would my life be like if I lived in this way? And you start to write that, and you start to say, and this is where spiritual direction is so important, is you start to say, what would that look like for me? What would that look like for my family? What would that look like for ministry? And um, anyway, that's just a few thoughts, is to say there's an imaginative enterprise that goes on as you do this. And I think that was Benedict's you know, contribution was he engaged in this imaginative enterprise, right? started to think about what would this look like and he got super creative and one of the things Esther DeWall says that I just it just sticks with me and I try to see her every time I can possibly get anywhere near is like there's a tension there's like a really real tension between in these paradoxes of life right we have to make a living and yet we have to be single minded how do you do that and for Benedict the answer I think is to deal creatively with the paradox Right? And that's where the rule comes in. And that's what a rule is, in essence. It's a, it's a creative process that helps you deal with paradox. Like, what's more important, the church or my family? Well, the rule of life that I have is going to tell me what, what is. And it's not always going to be the same answer. Um, so I hope that helps you. Like, if you're working in tech, you know, and you say, who's more important, God or Google? You know? It's like, do they have to be in competition? Is there a way that I can creatively deal with that, with that tension? And I think there is. So, yeah. I love your question, Chris. Chris has been through the catechumenate like three times, like even like the very, very, very beta catechumenate before Eucharist Church is planted. Um, yeah, we like to say Chris has known Ryan longer than he's known me, which is true. Um, so, but yeah, I think it's a very legitimate question. What what does, uh, and I wonder if we might have to go from the telos backwards like i'd be curious of your guys' thoughts on this um but to think in terms of what is single-minded devotion what is purity of heart to god look like in my life and then what do i need to weed out from that point backwards and does that mean very radically, does that mean a different job? You know, like very radically, does that mean I live 
below the standard of living I'd like to live because I'm prioritizing stability over, you know, owning a six bedroom home and a different part of the states, you know, like, like what, like what, like, you know, like you have to like start thinking like what, but then it's also individual in the sense of, well, what am I called to? I think, right. Where it's, it's particular to a particular person. Yeah. So I think it's a great question. Um, and Bishop Eric Minnies, who's here, gave me opportunity last year to come and, and lead the uh, clergy retreat for the Diocese of San Joaquin. And there's some folks that are uh, some clergy that were at that. And it was on the rule of life. And so first of all, Chris, like you like, OK, so Benedict has this rule. None of us are, you know, uh, sixth, seventh century, <laughs> you know, uh, Roman citizens uh, or formerly Roman Empire citizens who are now you know, living in a monastery in a hilltop in Monte Cassino, Italy. Um, it sounds great, but we're not. So, um, but, uh, a rule of life is a delicate balance because you need to start with reality. What are my commitments? And, and I think you need to boil that down to what are the necessary commitments? Employment, um, you know, those kinds of things, not, not the like commitments, you know, this isn't about like you know, game night with your friends like that at the end of the, you know, if there's a standing game night that that technically is something that could be, you know, could be moved. And then you, you take uh, what I argued for at the clergy conference last year was to say like, in, as, as at least for Anglicans, then you've got the, the, the prayer book is going to rule your life to some extent, because it's going to tell you to pray at least a couple times, if not three times a day four maybe uh, those kinds of things. And so you, you start, it's creative because you, you take where you're at but not bending everything else to fit that, but to say, like, where is the rule telling me to, to, to be different, to live differently? Um, and I think, like, Elizabeth's sense of starting with the telos is great. So for me, like, to use the example I was talking about yesterday with stability was to think, like, I don't know, what, I mean, what does stability mean for me? Like, this was the question I asked a dozen years ago. Like, I, I know what it means for monks for Benedictines and Cistercians, not, not the, of the Olivet and sort, but they, they're going to live and die in a monastery, same monastery. Uh, but for me, that's not, you know, I don't, I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 years. I don't know where God might call me to go, to go exercise this vocation. Um, but again, it put a check on that wanderlust that I had about maybe living in a different place. And so I do think that's, that's just adaptation. And, and, and for what it's worth, uh, now I'll say a bigger, kind of make a bigger claim, we have this weird thing we do as Christians uh, where we like, you know, in the third century, they did this. And then I'm like, yeah, and then the seventh century, they did something different. Well, yeah, well, the third century, like, why are we privileging the third century over the seventh century or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, so the point is, is this is a, this is an ongoing, the Holy Spirit did not like, okay, I gave you, you know, the Nicene Creed, I'm out of here, thanks. Um, so everything can kind of be done at 325 or 381, whatever, you know, 431 if you want to go to Ephesus. But the point is, is like, you know, how do we, oh, thank you for doing How do we, you know, like take the reality of what we've called to be, like assuming your tech job at Google is a vocation, you know, whatever, is, is that's a vocation. That's God's vocation. But yet what, where does God also ask me to conform my vocation to, 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 to daily prayer to uh, service to others to love of God and neighbor and it's that constant interplay and so the the rule of Benedict I mean I think so, so final thing because uh, I've talked way too much but like 
every monastery has a customary. Like, we live by the rule of Benedict. How do you live by the rule of Benedict? That's the customary. So, like, you go to different Benedictine monasteries, it's not all the same. And you might be going, they don't follow the same rule. The answer is like, well, yeah, they do to the spirit for sure. But then they have a customary that dictates their actual day in and day out. And these customaries go back to the early church, to the Middle Ages. So maybe a, way to, a different way to think about that is like, okay, we have the rule of Benedict, but what's my customary of adapting that rule, which might look different than other people? I'm struck by the second part of what you said, Chris, which was, is there a place for a communal rule even in the midst of this culture, you know, where you're working for Google or Facebook and you're, you know, and it's, and it's a somewhat transient job. And um, Bill, I hope it's okay that I say this. I've got a thumbs up. Bill's another member of the catechumenate. Um, but Bill has a real passion for thinking about constructing some sort of order or rule around technology in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, or maybe just in general, just tech, tech people. Um, but I think it has to, again, start with that telos, and, it, and Bill, this is what Bill said, you know, starting with that telos where you can almost go away for a season, cultivate, almost in the absence of technology, like, what does, like, where is my purity of heart for God? Like, cultivating some of that on, like, a deeper gut, heart level, not just an intellectual pursuit, but, like, having a place where you can abide in that single-mindedness of God and then enter back into Silicon Valley, enter back into your tech jobs, and start to think collectively as tech people and like a community of tech people and theologians. And I should just have Bill come up here and talk about it. But a community of tech people and theologians and, um, and start to think, well, if we are single-minded in our devotion of God, if we do have purity of heart to God, from that place, what does it look like to relate to technology? What does it look like to create technology? What does it look like to create a rule or an order out of technology that all of us can abide together and hold each other to that? Go back to that place of, you know, maybe tech fast, you know, like periodic tech fast, but then going back. So like, to, but just but having a communal rhythm. But again, it seems like it always does start with that telos and then like a communal conversation of then how do we engage this now together? Jerry, uh, that reminds me a bit of what maybe you do with your January term course when you, you teach monasticism out in, the, out in the wilderness. Maybe you could say a brief word about how does when you, when you remove them from the normal academic context and you learn in, in that environment, how does that then go back and shape how they are as students in the classroom? Well, it's always difficult to translate, isn't it? So we have to live in the a world of the ideal that is what we aspire, single-minded devotion to God. And then we have to think about our life as it is, the demands that are imposed on us. Say, if we're married, we have children. Uh, we have a particular kind of job and the demands that job puts on us and uh, uh, church work, whatever it happens to be. You know, that's... Um, I introduce them to ideas and practices, and then I try to give them tools to think about what, how this will play out when they get returned to their ordinary life. And I give them seven, sort of seven areas that I consider, broadly speaking, monastic practices. Like uh, I introduce them to the notion of a liturgical script. Those kinds of um, texts and gestures and so on that... Uh, they will deeply internalize, creating 
what I call deep neural pathways that will begin to shape their life in the world. Um, <clears throat> so we do all that, and uh, th- th- there's some success there. The other thing, though, is that I strongly encourage them to do life with some other people. So they hold that out before them. In other words, let's say I belong to a, I don't know, your catechumenate group or a small group or whatever you do. Every church is going to have a look a little different. And their own schedule, their own particular needs become what I call the property of the group. So a person will say, I have to get up so early in the morning. I don't see my kids when I leave. Sometimes I don't. I get home and I see them a half hour before they go to bed. Let's talk about this as a group. Are there any, uh, any powers that I have to begin changing that rhythm some so that I can be more present to my children? Or I can figure out a way to do what you Anglicans would call the daily office uh, or whatever. I think we have to do life with other people. It can't be a large group of people. It has to be a subset of a local church and then, of course, a much smaller subset of the body of Christ. And then we do that kind of practical uh, problem solving that uh, is going to change from one season to the next. I mean, Elizabeth and Ryan here are about to have another big change in a couple of months, and that's going to change the rhythm a lot. And then they have to bring it up again and talk about it together as a family or as a small group um, so that they're always returning to those basic rhythms and practices that we have inherited from the larger life of the church and figuring out how to, uh, or to discern what it means for us in light of our circumstances uh, to maintain our focus on that ultimate goal and then to adapt accordingly. It's hard work, but it's necessary work. Uh, Dr. Sitzer, yesterday in Alex's paper that you wrote, uh, if, I, <laughs> if I understood it correctly, um, you outlined in the early church, specifically looking at Hippolytus, how uh, catechumens were admitted on an incremental basis, up to and including not being able to pass the kiss of peace, make the confession of faith and Holy Eucharist. Would you argue that that would be a good practice in the modern church? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Somebody mentioned, uh, I think Greg actually mentioned a couple of times that the um, problem that many mega churches have found is that their boundaries are so permeable that membership has no real concrete meaning. No one knows whether they're in or out. Uh, mainliners, you know, they define the category of membership as a way of kind of getting at that. Uh, but in the typical Methodist church today, uh, weekly attendance is about a third of the membership. Again, membership is not a meaningful category. So somehow, for purely sociological reasons, to say nothing of theological, we have to figure out how to make membership, being a part, a member of the body of Christ, why that's a meaningful category in the first place. And uh, there are a variety of ways to do that. In the early Christian period, they had the, what they called the, uh, how do you pronounce it, Disip- Disciplina Arcana. Uh, arcana, it means the, the, uh, the um, sort of the, the secret 
practices of the church that belonged only to the membership, the people who were on the inside. And that was the kiss of peace, the Lord's Prayer, um, the meaning of the sacraments. They actually didn't explain uh, what the sacraments were theologically till after they were administered in the rites of initiation, what they called the octave, which is the eight days following uh, the rites of initiation into the life of church, then they would actually explain those. We, act, we have sermons from the fourth century of explanations of the sacraments. Isn't it curious that that happened after instead of before? So there were a number of ideas and practices that were reserved only for the church, but it wasn't a club. And the reason why is because those boundaries were still permeable. That is to say, people could come to worship, but then they were dismissed uh, they built strong Christian friendships with the very dense environment of these urban spaces in the ancient world. And, of course, they weren't going to church. They were the church because they didn't own any buildings till well into the third century. And so much of what they did was highly, highly public. Just imagine what that was like. Everybody watched you all the time. People didn't spend time indoors. They didn't have backyard decks. They didn't even have front porches. They just lived on top of each other. And so there were lots of organic connections with the larger community. And then through personal relationships, it would gradually move people from casual friendship in the marketplace toward curiosity, toward deeper relationship, toward enrollment in uh, as catechumens in the catechumenate, to the rites of initiation to full membership. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a way we ought to do it. There are variations on the theme, but something like that, I think, needs to be the practice of the church. And I think a a church that has to figure out what that is. Maybe it's the divine office that becomes a practice only for those who have, uh, you know, been baptized and confirmed and received the sacrament or something else. So that membership becomes for theological and sociological reasons, a meaningful category. Can I add just a word on this? I it's kind of like being a red-shirt athlete and then finally being able to play. <laughs> we need, we need a, a, a strategy of red-shirting. <laughs> I think there's something that com- complexifies, do you think, weird word, this, our, our contemporary situation, and that is that in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, there was still a, a unity within what was defined as orthodoxy, such that if you were at one church and you were, say, disciplined, you couldn't just go to the next church over and receive communion there. Whereas in our setting, it doesn't matter if we were to, to say, take on a very rigorous third-century model of, uh, you know, closed, uh, excusing the catechumens. You just go to the next church and you find out what the mysteries are there. You know, like there's. Yeah. So I think that the complexity of living in an ecumenical environment in which the church is splintered into, you know, thousands of pieces and everybody's practicing contradictory forms is another part of the, the difficulty of our era. Yes, yeah. And so we have people coming to us who are like, yeah, my last church I was receiving communion, but I wasn't even baptized. And I'm like, why can't I do it here? And I, I have to explain that to people, you know. Um, or So there's, there's deformed, there's, there's, we've all been deformed in some ways. I don't think that any of us have the pure, the pure you know, perfect formation or something like that. But I think that adds a layer of complexity to what we're doing as we are forming people into Christ and entering them into membership, as you're calling it. Perhaps a good example of what you're talking about is the community of St. Columba up in up in Montana with Justin Smith and Father Justin Smith and this whole wild community of 
I just call them Montana hipsters. Um, they, they basically, uh, their life doesn't happen in the Sunday liturgy at all. I mean, it does for the people that are super committed, but most of the people who are involved in that, some of them have been a part of that community for two years and they haven't been to a Sunday liturgy yet because they haven't signed on. They haven't, they haven't decided to join it. Um, so that's a, you know, a bit of a different way of looking at it, which is that they're involved, sometimes tangentially, sometimes very seriously, but there's a point when they'll sign on. And one of the things he says that I just really appreciate is the Sunday liturgy is not the contact point for visitors or for those who are seeking to be, uh, to become members. It's, it's a kind of culmination of the community's life at the end of the week. And, um, that's just, that's kind of one way to look at it. And so I guess a less rigorous way that, that I do it is when people ask me, what time does church start? I say, 9.30. <laughs> that's not our Eucharistic time. It's the catechesis time. And that's just a really minor change, right? But it sends a really solid message, I think, which is that our church's life is not just a worship service. Like our church's life is... For you, who's, who are, you're not a part of it, like <laughs> you're really not, uh, come to catechesis. I think that's kind of a, a really kind of minor, but it's an important way to say to spell out the difference. So, just real quick, can I add something real quick? Um, so, what I really appreciate about Jerry's paper yesterday, and even in Resilient Faith, is there's is a historiography uh, Jerry's book. There's a historiography that says the reason why these people weren't allowed was because we had to, they had to suss out if they were true Christians. Right, because like the Roman Empire had you know spies. I think that's Jerry. You would know more about this. I think that's a dismissed historiography at this point. I mean, I think it, the sure was there some of that. Yeah, of course. But so the point wasn't to suss out like, are you a Christian or not? And I think that's the, that changes it, Bishop. Like that's a game changer to think like, oh, this wasn't it wasn't done for this reason that was often promulgated. This was actually the way they thought that was appropriate right. for the church. Wasn't they were protecting against spies. It wasn't a communist country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, that means we have to think about something like that, I think, right? If we want to look to the early church as an example, you know, we just have to think like, okay, what does that look like? You know, because it wasn't for this reason that we had been told. It actually was in the DNA of the early church. And if we want to think about that, what does that look like? So I think that's, yeah, I think what I'm hearing is like, we're all like, I don't know what it looks like, but we got to figure it out. Yeah, I'll add this. I, I actually appreciate seeker-friendly churches because I think we need to recognize the value of what they were trying to do, and that's reach the lost. And some of those churches, many of them, were enormously successful. Our megachurch in Spokane senior pastor is a really good friend of mine, and they have seen so many conversions. I've gone to some of their baptisms. I don't like the way they do baptism. I don't like the way they do communion. There's much I don't like. Um, but they are really successful in reaching truly unchurched people and secular people. The problem is they've discovered in all the research they've done is that they've got this large group of people who were attracted to the church and in many cases became Christian. Then they have a fairly large and committed professional staff. What they don't have is the group in between, mature well-established Christians who are not on staff but are working in the world. So what happens is they keep adding people to the church and they add them 
to programs and to staff, but they don't add them to a critical mass of people who are serious about following Jesus. That's what we have to figure out what to do, uh, how to do that. And those churches have to figure that out because they're adding people to nothing. I mean, it's strange. It's like it's like adding people to a team, but you don't have a core group in the team that are actually good athletes. Is it possible that the seeker movement is a kind of catechumenate? Because I've often wondered if, like, because I, honestly, I look around. There's a lot of churches that are a lot better at articulating the gospel or connecting with people in secular uh, settings than I feel like I am or, or I, as a pastor or as our churches. I, I, it's the second piece that's often missing there, but I just wonder if the catechumen has gotten separated from the church almost in some sense. Thought experiment. I don't know if that's just crazy. Well, well I heard about a church once that, like, they use their, and I know someone once asked the question, sorry, like, uh, but I, I heard about a church once that, like, Sunday morning was their seeker-sensitive service, but but thick church, real church, happened on Tuesday nights. Oh, that happens quite a bit. Yeah, and, and like, I remember when I learned that, I also learned it from someone who was quite critical of it. Like, I mean, gosh, what does that say to those poor people? And I thought, I think it just says to them, like, there's a whole different level to this church that you can become a part of. So I'm not saying that's the solution, but I think that's a way that, you know, um, that, that, that there's a way to, I mean, again, we have to just work so hard not to have a, you know, like, well, this is the barely committed group, and this is the committed group, and this is the super committed group, you know what I mean? So whenever I need a nursery worker, I start out here, but I'm always ending back with the 15 real people who, you know, are already over. So anything that's not that, I think, is worth trying to think through and explore. Uh, case in point, this is purely anecdotal. We have a local church, a new church plan, eight years old. We have a lot of church planning uh, going on in Spokane right now, and uh, uh, Whitworth is kind of tied in. That's one of our our communities of partnership. And uh, I preached last Sunday at a church. It started eight years ago. It has about 700 worshiping on a Sunday now. So, it, And they are very successful. Some are dropouts from other churches, but they really also are quite successful in reaching people who are profoundly unchurched. And they realize they're they have a problem. They have a lot of new Christians, and so they are going to start an experiment of gradually working on new catechumenate through the whole life of the church. Their goal in the next 10 years is to have everybody go through it, and they're going to start it incrementally, a two-year catechetical program, which is just great. It's been fun to, to see that begin to unfold, and they're going to start with their core group people. And then work it out from there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think this is a two-part question. Um, for those who are coming from maybe non-Anglican backgrounds or in, in non-Anglican traditions currently, or for Anglicans who are uh, who haven't taken catechesis seriously, uh, a what what do we lose um, if anything by using different terminology than catechesis, calling it something like discipleship? I don't know, something like that. Um, and then secondly, um, you're not going to sound nearly as cool. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's clear. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, secondly, um, given that I, I agree with this, I'd like to just hear more about, uh, what, why we definitely shouldn't call it Sunday school. Well, no, I, I'd love to answer this question if I can. I'll never forget in about 2009, Archbishop Duncan took Jack Gabbing and I aside and said, as he can do. 
well, I think you ought not use the word catechesis. <laughs> and it was just, it was more like because he just noticed bishops in particular like checking out as soon as they heard that word. And I remember Jack just stuck up for us and said, but Bishop, it's a biblical word. Even you don't have the authority to take it away. <laughs> like, <and> I, thought, <laughs> I was like, yes. And, but that's true, right? Like, the word catecheo is a biblical word, and we, and we should use it boldly. Um, and, but as I think about it, one of the reasons we should do that is because people hear discipleship, and they check out because they already think they know what it means. And one of the, value, the values of using a word that's unknown to a lot of people, although there are some that, you know, visions of nuns with rulers come immediately to mind when they think of the word catechesis or catechism, um, or just their, you know, pastor who had drone on and on on Lord's Day 1 through 52, you know, however it went. But one of the big values, and this is why we at Christ Church call it catechesis, is, and we call it that boldly, is that it, it's different in a way that is noticeably different, right? And it's not just the word we use, it's the practice is different. So I think that's really important just to say, like, our practice is different. Sunday school if I can just be blunt, is, is, uh, is, a, is a phenomenon of um, kind of industrial, in, of the industrial West. Um, and it's based on an idea that um, we should be able to educate, um, you know, the, the Irish idea was we should be able to educate, you know, urban youth. And, and not just in scripture, but in reading, writing, arithmetic. And, and uh, the, the problem with it is that through the years, um, the church's pastors and priests began to distance themselves from that work so that they assumed that it was the Sunday school teacher's job to catechize the children of the, of the congregation. Um, and they stepped back from it. And one of the things that we can see is that in the Sunday school world, the curricula have been built up by these large multi-denominational entities that find value by perpetuating the lowest common denominator. And the way they do that is by just avoiding doctrinal content. So a catechism is really different from that. Um, catechesis is different from that. Um, and I think one of the reasons that, you know, we've just, as a, as a church, just as a parish, just said, we're not going to buy off-the-shelf curricula for uh for Sunday school, and we've gone with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd for kids, you know, because it it actually gives us room to do that, right? And that's an important thing in that in that whole world. So I I think Sunday school is Sunday school is just an interesting phenomenon that that uh, carries certain connotations, and a lot of times the connotation is like we're just going to give the kids something to do, and and there's not we keep using the word tell us, but it, it's not there. Whatever it is, it's not there. Um, so that's a problem. Um, I think I would also argue that um, we've got a lot of things in place today that are troublesome to me in terms of how young people have been formed through their lives by things like Sunday school, by things like youth ministry, things like that, where you can say in a very real way um, there's been a kind of perpetuated juvenilization that's gone on where we're not really raising up our children to maturity. And a lot of that's just the culture, but a lot of that is also like, we just don't know what that would look like. Um, and we've been weaned off of 
even knowing mature Christians. Um, so I think that's 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 why I just say it's catechesis, right? Um, and that does require learning a new terminology, but I also think at the same time the value is that there's not this kind of nodding head syndrome where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I get it. Like You have to learn a new, a new vocabulary, and that's really... It's really important. So that's just where I go with it and why I use the word. Yeah, I can think of two ways. Like, I mean, one is, is the good news is, is all communication happens within a, a semantic uh, community, right? So, like, um, if I were to be talking about the Lord's Supper and accidentally say baptism, your your mind will say, oh, he meant to say Lord's Supper. I get it. Right. You're not confused by the slip of the tongue because if we're operating in the same kind of semantic environment, right? So I think like what you, you know, you, you can, I mean, potato, potato, you, you can kind of call it what you want within your church because you'll also be teaching about what it is, um, right? Catechesis itself doesn't make clear necessarily what you're doing, Right, I mean, in this room, we probably have like again because we're a semantic, you know, community. We probably have a certain thing we're thinking. But I remember when like the, the in, in within the Roman Catholic Church, there's this neo catechumenate, and I remember like neo catechumen. What is that? Is there an old catechumenate now a new one? That's awesome. I have no. Idea. I still don't know what it is. But I mean, like, <laughs> I just haven't taken the time to figure it out. I just remember being in a at a papal audience on a Sunday morning after Mass in St. Peter's, and like the neo-catechumenate people had a big banner. And I was like, neo-catechumenate, what is that? That's awesome. You know, so, but I have no idea what it is because like I'm not part of that environment. But the other way to think about it is, so you'll be able to, in your church, be able to, like if you want to call it discipleship, which is also a biblical word, you know, you could, you can say, and that's what this means here. Part of the problem though is like if we're trying to communicate outside the church to what we're doing, that, that, that's where it becomes, you know, like, they don't share the same semantic environment initially. So it, it, it matters there, right? So I, I'm actually a fan of like, um, I, I agree. I mean, the phrase Sunday school, much less the practice of it, grows out of, I think you're right, just industrialized, you know, the, the West. Like it's, it's the Charles Dickens, these kids slave away in the factories all day. And so we should teach them how to read and write and know Jesus on the weekend on Sunday, right? It's the only day they're going to get off anyway. So, um, but that's okay, like, if you still want to use that phrase. But, I mean, I think it means what do you, what do you put into it? Like, what, how do, when people in your parish or church hear that, what do they think? How to communicate that to the outside is totally different. So we actually, at Epiphany, don't go look at our website. It's not great. But we, we, last year, I said to our parish administrator, wipe the website. All I want on it is this is where we meet. This is when we meet. This is our name. We want to meet you. So come. By the way, if you really want to hear a sermon, click this link. If you, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's basic. And that was because like we just don't need hundreds if not thousands of words to try to tell people what we're doing when we don't even know who they are. So we, we, we thought, no, let's, let's use our website just as like the invitation card. The, you know, the, the, it could even be the, uh, what, what happens these days? I got married too long ago. Uh, save the date, right? It's almost like a, like, you don't, you don't have to come to the wedding, but could you, could you come and mark it on your calendar and let's take a look at what we do? And then maybe you'll be interested in, you know, coming to the wedding or something like that. So, so that was because we realized we were having to spend so much time trying to say 
these things and realizing that like we're probably doing it poorly anyway, the way it's being understood. So let's try to back up and think differently. So that, that's kind of my response because it's practical. Like your question just is practical. Like, so I think like, well, for, the in, for those who are in the church, they'll know because you'll teach them what it means. For those outside, man, I don't know what word you can use where you might really communicate everything that you're getting at. So in one sense, maybe quit using it at all and try to find a way to get people in and make it about a conversation, not about like, you know, this is what we, like, you know, because you want to say, and at 930, we offer disciple, mm, kata, uh, Sunday, uh, what word are we going to use? You know what I mean? Like, I, like it's a, literally that problem right there. You're trying to communicate something. But again, you're trying to do that to people who might not share the vocabulary anyway. So it's a challenge. Um, I, I have preferences, but, you know, that, that's neither here nor there, so... Yeah. The, um, the Roman Catholic Church in the the Roman Catholic Church in the seventies, uh, I think, uh, mandated by the Pope, they put together a study committee and they created what they called the RCIA. Uh, let's see, what is it? The Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic Initi- uh, Rights of Initiation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right of a Christian Initiation of Adults. And they and they they actually the study committee studied the early Christian catechumenate, and that became the primary source they used in figuring out how to create a process that would form people in the faith, and that has spread to some degree since since then from a Roman Catholic perspective. Uh, one of the things that uh, some of the folks at Whitworth talk about is uh, we use the phrase functional maturity. That is that if you put a detective on a person for two weeks and that person did not know they were being followed, they would look recognizably Christian all the time. That's functional maturity. Athletes develop a functional competence. My sons played AAU basketball when they were growing up. And by the time they were in the sixth or seventh grade, they became what I'd call functional basketball players. That had put them on a court, they knew what to do all the time. Now, they could have gotten better. They did get better at everything they were doing, shooting off the dribbles, uh, picks and rolls, setting screens, blocking off for rebounding, the 25 or so skills you need to be a functional player. But once or twice a year, they would scrimmage against the uh, uh, Whitworth uh, uh, basketball team. Now, these were seventh-grade boys, eighth-grade boys. And it was fun because even though they were smaller and slower, uh, they the, the, the Whitworth team would always say they knew what they were doing on the court. I think that's what we should aim for by the grace of God is to help form functional Christians who kind of know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, not perfectly, needless to say, all the time. And that leads to what I call a capacity for improvisation, which is increasingly important in our post-Christian world because the culture is less and less friendly to what it means for us to be a, a, a follower of Jesus. And that requires hard work and prayer. And call it what you want to. Catechesis, call it uh, discipling, but a multi-pronged approach to elevate the level of spiritual maturity among our members so that they know what it means to follow Jesus day in and day out as husbands and wives and parents and executives at uh, Microsoft or 
Well, I guess that's not fashionable around here. What is it, Google around here? Yeah, we're, we're Microsoft country, um, and so on and so forth. And I think churches need to ask the question, what can we do? Now, obviously, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But God, over the, over the centuries, has chosen to use these very weak and fragile human instruments, including the life of the church, to produce those functional Christians. Just really quick, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So at the very least, make a list of like the ten attributes or five attributes we want to see in people that we've raised to maturity and aim for that and try to build some structures that will get you there. That's the basics, right? One of the things about a catechism is a catechism basically tells you what that is. So it gives you the charter for it. That's a, that's a helpful thing. You don't have to design it from the ground up. Uh, one of the questions that I've been really contemplating the last couple of years is the link between that, that liminal space between interest and curiosity and enrollment in formation in a parish, you know what I mean? And how do you get that link? And there's something that I think you just said, uh, Dr. Sitter, that really resonated and I think kind of connected some synapse in my brain. Because when I was in Asia, we lived in a place where it was literally our lives were stacked on other people's lives. And there's a way to actually isolate yourself in that situation where you could live your own life. But for the most part, people in these small little microcosms, these uh, apartment complexes, knew everybody, kind of already knew everybody's business, too, whether they wanted to or not. And there was this connectivity that I found my wife and I have been longing to cultivate and trying to figure out and scratching our heads how to cultivate in America. And one of the things that we've stumbled across was kind of going back to what Dr. Peters was saying about living small and locally and actually being intentional with hospitality to cultivate spaces of connections where our lives will um, naturally and consistently bump up against other people, both good and bad. And so we've done that in Stockton with a Lao restaurant <laughs> that we are at all the time. Our family joined a jiu-jitsu academy like three minutes from our house. And I've almost treated it almost like a part-time job where I'm going to be consistent here whether I want to or not because I need to be a constant presence so people can see me on good days and bad days and that they have an, a contact with somebody that... I have the you know I have the oddity of having a caller, so there's some curiosity there. But I found that 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 intentionality, this almost attachment theory of just showing up and being a welcoming presence, is an important thing. Where oh why weren't you guys at why weren't your girls at jujitsu last night? Oh we had a feast day mass. Wait what, what's a feast day mass? Oh well you know or hey I saw on your Instagram what's what's a candle mass? What, what what's that? Oh let me tell you. And I found myself going to the Super Bowl at this Lao place and having people from the Jiu-Jitsu Academy saying, hey, can we come with you? And during halftime, <laughs> while one of the guys was vaping out uh, outside, he was talking to me about, yeah, you know, these are these, these two vices that I've been dealing with. How, you know, you're a priest. How should I address this? <laughs> you know? And, like, th- there's just this, this connectivity that kind of helps bridge those things. And I just, I just wanted to make the comment that I think you're, what you talked about is, like, the, the environment of the catechumenate in the, uh, of, in the early centuries was a stacked-on-stacked life, and that I think if we intentionally live locally and consistently, we can create environments for curiosity and for the inroads for people to actually explore and want to poke in and kind of look through the window and then 
be welcomed in. Yeah. So. Well, that's one of the uh, signs of functional maturity is their capacity to develop meaningful relationships with people who are outside the faith and outside the church and to see that as a, a thing that Christians ought to do so they don't just hang with their own kind, whether it's working out at a YMCA or coaching soccer, so you're meeting the parents of these kids, you're finding points of contact where you can have a meaningful exchange of ideas, a sharing of life, and you become the bridge that moves these people toward a real encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and eventually draw them into the life of the church. Uh, It's interesting that in the second century, we hardly know a name of somebody who has been remembered in history who was, quote, an evangelist. Gregory Thaumaturgus, the wonder worker, okay, one name, third century. Uh, And we know some apologists, but regular churchgoers didn't know who they were because they were trying to communicate, however successfully or unsuccessfully, with the elites. How did they do evangelism? They did it through unnamed, unknown people and through human relationships and human and natural networks. And we need, in my mind, to learn how to do that well. And that's one of the things that I commend for more seeker-friendly churches, is that that is a high, high value for them. Their problems, they don't know what to do once they get them. Well, we might know what to do once we get them, but we're not as good at reaching out and developing those points of contact. So we all have something to learn from each other. One of the, one of the concepts I use for that is the image of a front porch, right? It's, it's liminal space. I've, always, I've had a front porch on my favorite houses anyway. We, we have this attraction to craftsman houses. So we have this giant front porch in our house. And there are people who have been on our front porch that haven't been in our house. And, and there's a way of belonging but it's not full belonging. There's a way in the in the kind of catechumenate of believing, but not fully receiving the faith. I mean, I think those those are really good categories to to latch onto because here's here's the problem we've got in the church today. It's you're either in or out. There's this kind of binary way of thinking, like you're one of us or you're not. You're saved or lost. You're you know you're a sinner or a saint. Like we really we that's how we think, right? And then we make the categories really easy, like, well, how do you become a member? Well, you write a check to the church, and we put your address and phone number in the directory, and then you wind up in our system, and then you're a part of our church. Like, we really need to have intentional space. We need to mark people out as being in that liminal space. We need to be able to say, he's not a member, but he's in our world, right? And that doesn't happen inside the the parish church or the congregation. It happens in places like pubs, you know, where it's the pub that I go to on Wednesday afternoons before Evensong, and I'm greeted with, Father Lee, what can I get you today? You know, it's like, yes. A Guinness. Yeah. I'm the priest of the, but I'm the priest of the pub, and you know, like, the the owner's a member of our church, but he wasn't always, you know. I'm the priest of several places in town. And, and you know, when people come along with me on kind of like, would you just hang out with me for three days, you know, they're like, everybody knows you. Like, are they part of the church? Not all of them, you know, but, but they're in that liminal space, right? And, and I think it's often helpful for pastors and priests to just say, that's a space. People are in it. Like, these people are in it. Um, they're in the web, so to speak, they're, and, and we start to pray for them, and we start to um, engage in conversation with them. We start to invite them to things. We start to say, like, hey, 
you know, we're going to have a St. Patrick's Day party at my house. Do you want to come? You know, I'm going to brew beer next weekend. Do you want to come? You know, it's that kind of thing where it's, but I, I think, I'll say this. I don't think our instinct needs to be inviting people on the front porch to come to church. I think it needs to be hang out on the front porch with me. Or can I hang out on your front porch? It's that kind of stuff. So I think it's really important because I think we jump to closing the deal way too fast. Long on-ramps. Yeah, long on-ramps, absolutely. Dr. Peters, this is a question for you. Um, When you said salvation does not exist out of the church, could you unpack that a little bit? And I was trying to understand what you meant by church and how does that translate to us in our practical lives? Sure, yeah. I was just I don't quote, know, Jerry I was, might want to have a shot at that too. I was just quoting a church father, so I don't know what it means. No, I'm kidding. Um I mean I was though. Uh um don't let this be the last don't let this be the last word, Alex. Um so again, I mean, like I was saying in my talk, I'm kind of doubling down these days on the sacramental life of the church. And um, and so if when God created us in the, in, in the world, he created us good. And because of that, um, there's, gra- there's grace, right? Um, and but yet what we need is more grace to continue to, to mature, to grow. Um, to be better followers of Jesus. It's, it's, this is all because of God's grace and graciousness. Um, well, the sacraments, by definition, um, convey grace. Now, there might be many means of grace that God has given to the church, but the way I would think of the dominical sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, they just do that work that they're meant to do. They convey grace. And so because of that, they become the certain and sure means of the grace of God uh, in our life and, and in the lives of people. And so therefore, um, by necessity, those are sacraments that happen in the church. Um, this is not about baptizing someone down at the river. You know, this is like about they are the sacraments. If they're dominical of the Lord, they're the, they're the dominical sacraments, and so they they are done for the church, by the church, uh, in the church. And so therefore, by necessity, the church, to some extent, you know, is she is the container uh, of the grace that we need for salvation. Uh, this is still about a person. It's not about an institution. It's the person of Jesus. But um, I think that's what even the original sentiment of there is no salvation outside the church was. It was a sacramental statement. It was, well, where is grace to be found? Where is Jesus to be found? Uh, Damascus Road experiences are exceptional, not normative. Um, and so there, there can be radical grace found, you know, again, through many means of grace. But the church uh, is the primary uh, dispenser of God's grace. Uh, it, she is, uh, don't think of it as an institution, right? Take a more clear Pauline uh, spousal imagery, right? Uh, the church is the one with whom we are in relationship with so that she can bless us with her grace, which means that God is acting through his church uh, to reach his bride um, or his His children. Um, so I think that's what I was trying to get at by that is that like, you know, what I, what I, <laughs> I mean, in this room, I wouldn't have to say it this way, but I do with some of my students, you know, is I, I, I 
Well, I used to do more formal spiritual direction um, for grad students in the spiritual formation program at Biola. And I had to quit that at some point just from a time perspective. But I remember once uh, a directee was, you know, basically acknowledging, well, I don't, I don't go to church. You know, I, I really like the outdoors and I really feel like I can commune with God, you know, outdoors. And I thought, I'm sorry, I don't know what that has to do with my question about the church. Like, great, good, but God made that too, but then, like, you just can't read the New Testament and get away from the fact that the church, you know, is God's way of, of you know, uses the church to mature his, his people. So, um, so, again, like, I just, that's what I mean by it. The church is not something we opt into. Again, it goes back to that language of, vol- it's like, is it a volunteer association of people? Like, no, it is God's divine um, body by which we grow. So, yeah, I mean, I think you just can't, like, can you be saved ultimately? I mean, that's, that's God's business, right? So I'm not, it's not that. I'm just saying, like, why as believers would we not be eager uh, to, 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 for the church to be the place in which God, you know, ministers to us? Um, so that, that's what I was getting at. Um, I, I yeah, I think that's probably all I need to say. Like it's it rel- that relies on a really, really, really strong sacramental theology, which I think you can hear coming through. Um, that would be the part that that would be debated among the different manifestations of the church. Um, but even Calvin, who said like "yea" to the sacraments, as long as they're coupled with the Word, right? That's that's a part of his definition of what it means to be a sacrament. But then he says the way that God is present at the Eucharist is not you know, not in a material sense, because uh, God, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, but it's when the church is gathered together that it makes Christ present in the sacrament. So even Calvin, you know, would have a pretty strong sense of, you know, the place of the church. I hope I represented Calvin okay there. Elizabeth gets the last word here. Oh, no, I have the last word. <laughs> the penultimate word. Uh, well, all I said was I don't want, want the last word. My husband said I should have said that into the microphone. I would have, welc- I would have welcomed a healthy debate. But, um, okay, anyways, I think what I'm understanding from you, Dr. Peters, too, and, it was, and I think it's a very clear distinction, and to tie it back into this weekend on monasticism, um, is you can't be a monk by yourself. You can't just go into the desert and say, I'm going to be a monk. You know, like you had to have an Abba, or you had to have... Uh, institution that you're belonging to, like you, you, you needed a community of monks to be a monk, even if you were a hermit monk who was having food lowered to you on a weekly basis, you know, in a cave. Um, and I think it's interesting if we think about the church as a dispensary of individual goods for my individual life with Jesus, and like the telos of my Christian life. The end of my Christian life looks like me and Jesus by ourselves in somewhere, you know, like, then that's one thing. And then it's the church is a, is a means to this end of my personal relationship with Jesus. And I'm not, I'm sure that there is some truth in that word, but I think that's very different than saying somehow there's this, um, very interesting theologian named Simon Chan. He's actually a Pentecostal, but he writes about liturgy and sacramentology. So very interesting fellow. But, um, but he says actually the church existed, from the very beginning in a sort of way because as the body of Christ and having this identity with Christ and Christ existing from the very beginning, 
there is this unity between Christ and the church that has always been intended and always existed. And so it's not that there was creation, fall, and now, you know, the church is trying to get back to Eden almost. It's more so there's creation and creation is there to realize the church because the church has been there ontologically from the beginning. So like there's this this thing about, no, like the end actually is for us to be the bride of Christ. And I'm not the bride of Christ by myself. I'm the bride of Christ as the body of Christ, which is this collective identity. And so that's a very different understanding of salvation than just me and Jesus in a personal relationship. Okay. Thank you guys so much. Let's give our, everyone another round of hand. I believe we have some time to, to linger. I know people have flights uh, and things that they'll need to catch, but I believe we have a few, few moments to linger by those books. Um, <laughs> and I am going to put Father Ryan on the spot to give us a final benediction. Give that the last word.